Life doesn't make any sense. You ever said that? A lot of people say that. And they cry out. They're all frustrated about it. And they might not say it just like that. But you might once in a while wonder, what's the point of life? I think back to a friend of mine who years ago had served in World War II. And he had served in India in World War II. And he saw a lot of poverty, a lot of hunger, a lot of the results of war even in that country. And he really questioned his faith, which he had been taught as a child in a Presbyterian church even. And he said, I don't know how Christianity can be true if there's such terrible things going on in the world such as this. For him, life did not make any sense at all. And so he embarked upon a long mission of discovery. And he eventually called me up and told me that he had tried every other religion on the earth. And this guy was a very intelligent guy. Maybe it wasn't quite every one, but I remember he had investigated Buddhism and Jainism and, you know, Shintoism from Japan and Islam and uh, Hinduism and all these other religions he thought maybe had better answers. And he tried them all, he said. But then he came to me one day, he called me on the phone, and he saw the title of the sermon in the newspaper. And he said, I think I need to find out whether or not I should return to the Lord. He says, I tried everything else, but I need to come back to God. And that is somewhat like what is happening here. The book of Ecclesiastes has a lot of questions and eventually a lot of answers, but you don't get to them right away. In the weeks that are coming, we will deal with some of the questions and also some of the answers. If you happen to notice the outline that is in your insert, it says, does life make any sense? The vanity of the world, the vanity of humanity, and then an answer anticipated. That means an answer that we might vaguely see in this book, but more clearly see in the rest of the Bible. Now, many people are interested in Ecclesiastes because they only see the questions, and they say, well, see, even the Bible says life doesn't make any sense. Well, you haven't finished the book, and you haven't read the whole Bible, if that's what you think the teaching of the Bible is. It is a modern book in many ways, but it's also kind of a timeless book. These are the kind of questions that many people have, in contrast to the glory of creation, in contrast to the Solomonic wisdom that he had at the beginning, in contrast to the hope and the glory of that kingdom back in his day. And I do believe, and I'm going to take the position that Solomon did write this book. Verse 1 seems to say that fairly clearly. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Who's the son of David? King in Jerusalem. It has to be Solomon. Some people say, well, it's just the voice of Solomon, but I'm not going to get into that. He is the only son of David to rule in Jerusalem, and he asked for wisdom. And God gave him wisdom and riches, as you remember. But the brightness of Solomon's early glory faded in the light of his own sin. Now, I think we should also see some parallels to the book of Proverbs, many of which Solomon wrote in his younger years. And in Proverbs, he also has a number of very interesting things to say about life, usually more hopeful than this. But he also names himself the teacher or the leader of the assembly. And you also notice the term Ecclesiastes, 
which has to do with the church. If you look, the word ecclesia in Greek means the church, and the church is the gathered ones. And so the preacher gathered the people together at the dedication of the temple. Who was that? Solomon. He gathered the people together to hear what God was going to do in their midst. He looks forward to the fulfillment of the shadows, but he didn't see them all fulfilled. Even as Simeon in the temple was waiting for the coming of the Messiah and knew that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah himself, so Simeon looked forward to that which we, he would eventually see, and then he was ready to die. And so here this author is looking forward in some vague way, perhaps, to the answers to his questions. And then he proclaims in the great assembly this true wisdom, and ultimately we will see that the Bible has for us a recovery of true wisdom in Jesus Christ. Much like my friend who called me on the phone and said, I've tried everything else. Solomon will try everything to see if anything else satisfies him, but he gets more and more skeptical, more and more hopeless, older and sadder, and then eventually wiser. He laments his sin, and ultimately he hopes, as we'll see in chapter 12, in a coming Savior. He seems to almost get older as the book goes on. His journey illustrates the fact that the world and life are not really vanity, not really meaningless, but have direction. We find that ultimately, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that Christ is not only the power of God, but the wisdom of God. We preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Luke 11 has an interesting verse. It says, For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles. And wait a minute, who is the wisdom of God? It's Christ himself personified and incarnate. So here we have, in verses 1 to 11, an introduction, a summary of all that follows under the rubric of looking at things under the sun. And I know your pastor told you this, but I'll repeat it. Under the sun means from a horizontal perspective, looking out across the world, not looking up, not looking forward, but just looking outward to the world as it appears. One of my favorite cartoons is Peanuts, and some of you may still be fans of Peanuts and Charles Schultz, who was a believer and many times had funny illustrations in his cartoons or his comics. Here's Linus, familiar feature maybe to some of you, working on the beach. In New Jersey, we called it down the shore. And he's constructing a large sandcastle, which we used to do as kids. But of course, you have to know that the tide comes in. You have to time it just right. Because if you don't, you'll make your sandcastle, and the water comes in and washes it completely away, And Linus, after all this work, says, there's a lesson to be learned here, but I don't know what it is. He could have said, vanity, vanity, all these sandcastles are but vanity, the greatest of vanities. Exclamations like the one I started with, life doesn't make any sense. This is what modern man is saying to us, even. Some of you know of the famous artist Edvard Munch, And he wrote, he had several paintings, actually, that pictured a man screaming, which is just strange, isn't it? (laughs) Can you imagine a painting of somebody screaming and that's it? Well, not only does he have pictures of men screaming, but the whole top of their heads is off. 
So there's a guy screaming, and his head is off. And his skull is open. You're thinking, what a weird thing. In other words, he thinks life is so meaningless, I may as well just blow my brains out. And that's what people are really saying here today, in many cases, even literally. This has to do with the fact that life looks very hard and is hard and looks unfair, and it's certainly not the way it was created to be. The problem is we do have sin in this world. And he characterizes this world as vanity of vanities. That means the greatest possible vanity. The word vanity here means vapor or breath or something that easily passes away. Out in San Francisco, there's the fog, and it rolls in. They even have a name for it, strangely enough. Oh, Carl has visited us today. And there the fog is on the hills, and it's a breath or a vapor, and not long after the sunrise, usually, the sun burns off the fog, and it's gone. It's a vapor. It's a breath. It's something that does not last very long at all. It's the same word, root word in Hebrew as the word abel. It's havel, or abel. And this is where we find Cain and Abel, the first names of the first two sons born. Cain is a man of strength, and he's given a name of strength. I have gotten a son by the help of the Lord. But then by the time Abel is born, they've given up hope. And Abel himself was vain. It turned out to be even more so in the vanity of his sad death. The sober realities of the results of sin were there in the second son born to Adam and Eve. Moses says in Psalm 90, Return to dust, O sons of men. That's sad, isn't it? From dust you have come, and to dust you will return. David says for something very similar. It's instructive to notice that many of the Psalms have some of the same themes as Ecclesiastes. Life is a breath. It is a phantom. Man heaps up wealth for no good reason. Now, in Greek thinking, history is not a line. It is a circle. It goes around and around and around. The Greeks did not see much new in life as they looked at it from the under-the-sun perspective. They didn't see anything new. It's just the way it looks to me. It just looks like things haven't really changed at all. And the focus begins in verse 3. What does a man gain by all the toil in which he toils under the sun? Think about that. You spend all of your life trying to earn a living, preparing to supply your family with food and shelter, and then you get older and older and older. And as I sometimes say, Just when you think you've arrived, you're not going anywhere because you can't enjoy the things for which you have labored. And that's the aging process that you see in Solomon in this particular book. It seems like we haven't really gone anywhere. We we end up where we started. We go back to dust and we can't take it with us. And who knows why we were even here to begin with. Things don't make any sense. If you're a young person, you're in school, I find it interesting that a lot of people don't like math. Now, I happen to like math. But if you don't like math, you're going, this makes no sense. How am I going to use math? And you might think, well, how am I going to use algebra? Well, you know, 
There are some things that might be true about that in a way. But we can't therefore say all of life makes no sense just because you can't understand something. And maybe it's not math. For me, it was history. I had a hard time understanding history. You can never predict what was going to happen next. And yet here they have history going forward, moving forward in the scripture to a goal or an end, whereas in the Greek thinking, things are going around and around in circles. Now you'll also notice that if Solomon is the one writing, he is illustrating how much he has studied the world. And as you may notice in the book of Kings, you'll find that Solomon and Chronicles, Solomon is said to be quite a scientist. He studies the plants and the animals and the sun and the moon and the stars. He knows what he's talking about. He was a very wise man, not just in knowing what to do about things, but simply observing the way the world is made. And so now we're going to see a poem on human toil from Solomon's perspective. What does man gain by all the toil? And it's going to be a cycle of things going around and around in circles and going nowhere. All right, first of all, succession or circles of generations. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. What's a generation? Well, if you are a millennial, I can never keep this exactly straight. I think you were born in the 80s or something like that. And then there's Gen 1 and Gen 2 and Gen Z and Gen Y. I can't keep them all straight. It's every generation is like a group of people born within a certain, let's say, decade. You might be a child of the 80s or a child of the 90s. Or maybe you were born after 2000. Some of you clearly were. Others might be born a little bit later than that even. But it seems like a generation comes and a generation goes, and what difference does it make? Certainly, you know your parents if you're children. Some of you probably very well know your grandparents. Did any of you know your great-grandparents? Now, maybe you have If they live really old, some of you are nodding. Okay, that's great. Okay, that's fine. If you know your great-grandparents, you know, that's your parents' grandparents. That's hard to remember. Hard to imagine. Okay, how about your great-great-grandparents? I bet you nobody in here. If you prove me wrong, go ahead. But your great-great-grandparents, you know, probably lived 80 to 100 years ago, uh, if not more, and you do not remember meeting them. Maybe you have an old, fuzzy, brown picture of your ancestors. I remember I met a lady this morning in the church who loves to study her ancestors. It's all the way back to, uh, I think it was um, Sweden or something, and goes back and visits the graves of her ancestors. Well, she never met them, but she walked along the places where they used to walk, as she said to me this morning, but they're gone. She might know their names, but it took a little bit of research to figure it out. Do some of you have Some of you might have a family tree written up. I mean, we have one that I keep trying to fill in the blanks. But it's hard to remember the fact that we had many, 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 many generations go before us, thousands of years of your ancestors, and they are gone with hardly a trace. And so a generation comes and a generation goes, but here's the earth, still here the mountains and the rivers and the valleys. How long have they been here? Don't ask me. I'm not exactly sure. But a generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. Once again, this is from an earthbound or horizontal perspective. The genealogies of Genesis 5. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and he lived so many years, and he died, right? Isn't that depressing? So-and-so lives, you know, maybe 120 years. Think about that. And then he dies. 
So what? A few years longer than some people. Methuselah, Methuselah, 969 years? Hard to believe. And he died. Adam, 930 years, but he died. All of them died. We all die. Eventually, all the generations who come also eventually go. It's kind of sad, isn't it? Well, what about looking out at the sun? The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. There was a famous book written, The Sun Also Rises. I think it was Hemingway. The sun also rises and it also goes down. Now, again, from an earthbound perspective, we know that, yeah, we're, you know, the earth rotates on its axis and the sun is sitting there. But from our perspective, it certainly looks like the sun is rising in the sky. And then it sets on the other side, rises in the east, sets in the west, and it keeps going over and over again and hastens again to the place where it rises. Another day? Another morning? Now, some of you might greet the morning with joy, but this guy is tired of life. He keeps seeing the same thing over and over and over again. And now we think when there might be progress, now we just see the same old, same old. We call it monotonous. It's the same old thing. And then we have the circ. Oh, I had to mention one other thing, and that is the tides. Also, it says it talks about the tides. If you look at it in relationship to the to the moon, which the moon does cause the tides, and the tides go in and the tides go out. Now, I grew up going to the shore down in New Jersey, over New Jersey, wherever we are, <laughs> up in New Jersey, and I figured out that from high tide to low tide is about six and a half hours. And you look at the tide charts, and you can predict when the tide comes in and the tide goes out so you know when it's safe to build your sandcastle, for example. But it happens over and over again in a predictable way. You can predict it probably for years to come. It's that regular. And Solomon might have been by the beach at Tyre going, okay, the sun rises, the sun sets, and the tides go in and the tides go out. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. This is very similar, of course, to the tides. The wind blows to the north, goes around to the south. Around and around goes the wind. On its circuits, the wind returns. So he's got the sun and the wind and the streams and the tides, and they all go around and around and around. I don't see anything different today. It's not that different to me, he says. So what's the point? Why should we even bother with life? There's no rest under the sun. There's no rest for the weary. And he says in verse 8, All things are full of weariness, and a man cannot utter it. There is no peace, Isaiah 48 says. Yes, there is no peace for the wicked. (laughs) We who know the Lord will see there's a point to history and a direction and an end. But for people who simply look across the, the world and they say, I don't see anything different here than it's been for thousands of years. To bring it all home, what is it in your life that worries you that never seems to change? Is there something in your life or your heart that you wish were different? Now, God is bringing about new things, which we'll see at the end of our message today, but there are times you get very discouraged. Why do I keep falling into the same old traps, the same old sins, the same old patterns of life? How is it that I cannot really escape the round and around circles of what I am doing 
from day to day. I go to work, I come back. I go to school, I come back. I try to learn some math, it doesn't work. Around and around and around it goes. You might say, what is it that worries you? And a lot of it is because you don't see any point to it all. You don't see any end. You don't see any progress. You don't see any goals in life. Well, the vanity of humanity follows this point of this vanity of the world. The vanity of humanity is introduced, as we, be, as we see in verses 8 through 11, all things are full of weariness and man cannot utter it. So nothing satisfies. Because everything is going around and around, why should I get on the merry-go-round? I'm just going to jump off and forget about it. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. Nothing satisfies. So what is it that you're running after? The Gentiles run after things, Jesus says. Food and clothing and shelter or food and cars and music or sex or drugs or sports or pleasure. And after a while, everybody gets, well, I'm going to use a big word, jaded. They get tired of it all. That means I can't find any pleasure in anything I used to think was great. Proverbs 27 says, death and destruction are never satisfied. We keep dying. Things keep getting destroyed. And neither are the eyes of men. In other words, he says, the eye is not satisfied with hearing, nor the ear filled with, uh, with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. After a while, you think you've seen it all. If you have traveled the world, maybe you feel like you've seen it all. Or you've heard it all before, and you're tired of hearing the same old news, or whatever it's called. You're really tired of it all, and you wish you could just tune it all out. The Bible says that we are always lusting for something with a continual desire for more, but we never are satisfied. So nothing satisfies you. And of course, nothing is new. Nothing is new. Have you ever heard of an iPad? Of course. We all got iPads. What are you talking about? Well, at one time, that was new. Look at this. How about an iPhone? It seems like most people have those. At one time, that was brand new. Now even kids carry them around. We're thinking, what is going on here? (laughs) These things are brand new, but they get old, and they're no longer that cool. And you keep finding new things that you might think will be better whatever it is. People eventually say, well, maybe we won't be able to invent anything ever again. Did you know there was a man back in the 1870s who said, nothing new can be invented. We've already discovered it all. 1870. He says, we're going to close the patent office because nothing ever could be invented that's new. Now, of course, he was pretty dumb. (laughs) A lot of things were created and discovered after that. But He thought nothing new could surely come. And this is verse 9. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Well, maybe the tablet is new, but guess what? The stone tablet's really old. Some of the oldest things in the world are written on stone. Stone tablets, like the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, or little tiny clay pieces on which they find cuneiform in all of the piles of rubble over in the Middle East of ancient, ancient civilizations. They had reading and writing, and they communicated with one another, and those things lasted even longer than the iPad. You see what I mean? There are things that keep going on and on, writing and reading and and discovering things. The Egyptians had many modern conveniences. They had incredible water supply. You've heard of the aqueducts? Those were written, they were invented by the Romans. They were quite good. 
How about the Roman roads? They were, our roads get torn up every 10 years. And the Roman roads lasted for a long, long time. They were really good. And people could travel around. So it's not all that new to have concrete and asphalt on our roads that seem to fall apart so quickly. They had many clever and lasting inventions. There was a very famous man named Robert Jastrow, who was a NASA astronaut and physicist. And he was a Christian, and he was kind of amused by scientists who thought they knew it all. And the scientists who try to figure out what life is all about. The scientist who has lived by faith in the power of reason, the story lives, ends like a bad dream, he says. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. In other words, we're going to discover the meaning of life. He is able to climb the highest peak. He pulls himself over the final rock where he's going to find out what is the true meaning to life. And he's greeted by a band of Christians who have been sitting there for centuries. Christians know things about life that people are longing to discover and haven't figured it out yet. They keep trying new things, but it doesn't really work. Now, the amazing thing, of course, is that God, as we'll see in a moment, does new things. But for now, we are just a bunch of failures, making the same mistakes over and over again. Verse 11 says, things are never new. And verse 11 says, there's no remembrance of former things. Nothing will be remembered. All right. Let's try a little quiz. Anybody heard of Hitler? I bet you have. Pretty evil man. How about Churchill? Mm-hmm. Hope you have. How about Reagan? 80s? Clinton? Obama? Trump? Biden? These are getting to be newer people, right? But there are many people whose names you probably might not know. If you look around the streets, and I haven't done it today, I sometimes do this. I'll look around the streets, well, there's Jeff Drive or something. Who's Jeff? I mean, I just go up and down Jeff and hit different roads and get, over, get back over to the, to the, to the place where uh, the Tollies live. I'm going, who's Jeff? Does anybody know who Jeff is? Jeff Drive? I, I mean, I, that's the one I'm picking because that's the one I remember, okay? How many of you know who this guy is and you're driving on the street all the time? You're trying to figure out who these guys are. In Pittsburgh, they name everything after Andrew Carnegie, famous wealthy man, industrialist. We try to remember the names of people who have done famous things, and we name things like Martin Luther King Boulevard. It seems like almost every town seems to have some memory of his name. Psalm 49 says their tombs will be their houses forever, and they have lands named after them, but they're gone. You think anybody's going to remember your name? How famous are you? Well, some of you might be a little famous. I don't know. I've talked to people that related a bunch of people that are pretty famous. I just talked to one person last night who related to a lot of famous people. That's great. But who among your great-grandchildren, your great-great-grandchildren, remember you? I had an Uncle George who died in the war. He was in submarine service. I never met him. He died at approximately age 22. He had graduated from college with an engineering degree. He was engaged to be married, and he went off to war, and he was sunk off the waters of Japan. And people try to remember him. I've been to Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, and his name is there underneath the USS Scamp. One time I was at Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco. I couldn't find his name again, by the way, 
But for a while, his name was there in San Francisco because there's Fisherman's Wharf, and they had monuments and memorials to submarines and other ships that had sunk in the war. So people try to remember. They strain. Let's try to remember who has gone before us. Over in the Far East, many people do that. They remember their ancestors. They try real hard to remember their ancestors. But there's no remembrance, he says, of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Now, let's not forget that God doesn't forget anybody. That's one thing we'll discover later on in this book. God tells us things before they even happen, and they come to, to pass. And he remembers everything, and he writes to us in the word things that are forever true and will never change and are a great source of hope to us. His memory is eternal. His plans are unchangeable. God knows what he's doing. This author hasn't discovered that just yet, but I want us to discover it again. Because I could just say, there's nothing to remember, there's no point, vanity of vanity, amen, let's go home. How would you like that? That was depressing. I don't want to hear that kind of sermon. Well, neither do I. And it's a good thing that the Bible doesn't stop here as a whole. Even this book doesn't. Throughout these chapters, you will see an increasing understanding of what God is doing. God is doing something. We don't always know what. But we've got to understand that God is going to do things that will be remembered. For example, is there any satisfaction for us in life? Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, the ear is not satisfied with hearing, but the Christian is satisfied with God. He says, therefore, hunger and thirst for righteousness, and you will be satisfied. There is nothing new under the sun. It looks that way. But according to 2 Corinthians, we might get to this passage, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. It actually says part of a whole new cosmos. You're actually new in Christ. Something is new in you that wasn't there before. By the power of regeneration and the effectual calling and the power of the Holy Spirit, He makes you new people, even though we're all getting older, we're still new. God does something new for his people. The form of this world is passing away, but the kingdom of God lasts forever. We need to be convinced that all is vanity before we can look up and know that God is taking us somewhere. Is nothing going to be remembered? Well, there's one thing that's not going to be remembered, and that's our sin. Our sins will be taken as far away from us as the east is from the west. Isn't it great to know that God doesn't count our sins against us? That's one thing that's not going to be remembered. But what this guy is saying is even all the bad things will be remembered. Nothing good is going to happen. We say in God's power, with God's plan, with God's love and God's goodness, new things are happening and you are going to be changed and your sins will be forgiven and your sins will even be forgotten and your names are written in the book of life so that everyone will remember that God has saved you. Everyone. It doesn't matter how old you are when you die or how young you are when you die or that you didn't know your great-great-grandparents. If they knew the Lord, you'll see them again. And we'll say, great-great-grandpa, tell me the story of how you came to understand 
that life has true meaning. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Let's just contrast in conclusion these dismal ideas with what the Bible says later. First of all, generations come and generations go. Psalm 119 says, but God's faithfulness lasts through all generations. Or God's years go through all generations. Psalm 102. The sun is going around and around and around and around and it'll never stop and it's going nowhere. Well, guess what? In the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no sun. The Son of God is the brightness of glory and history will have arrived at its zenith and Christ will be the center of heaven and we will rejoice in having joined him there and life did make sense after all. The wind goes around and around and around. The word for wind is the same word in Hebrew that we get the word spirit from. The spirit, the Holy Spirit, hovered over the creation. And now Jesus tells us the spirit goes where he wants to go. And no one knows where he's coming from or where he is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. And God accomplishes his holy will through the creation in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us all about that in the books to come. How about history repeats itself and there is nothing new under the sun in Christ? Old things have passed away. All things get to be new. That'll be great, won't it? You'll be new. My old body's falling apart. So are you. Maybe a little younger. Maybe a little older. I don't know. But it doesn't matter. It does not matter that we seem to be falling apart. Inwardly, we're being renewed day after day also from 2 Corinthians. Do you think all of life is vanity? Think again. Ephesians 4 says, No longer live in the vanity or futility, same idea, of your thinking. Yes, you thought in circles. Yes, you thought everything didn't make any sense. But the creation has been subjected to futility, according to Romans 8, in hope, in hope for the resurrection and the adoption of sons, the resurrection of our bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, ends with this. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work is not in vain. There it is, vanity. You think your life doesn't make any sense? It makes all the sense in the world if God is using you, is working through you. Yes, your work is not in vain. You're not doing stupid things all your life for no reason. You are living for the glory of God, and that makes all the difference in the world. You actually make a difference in the lives of other people as you share the gospel, as you encourage them in the church with your love. Of course, we've already seen that nothing satisfies, but if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will be satisfied. Nothing new under the sun? How about Isaiah 43? Forget the former things. Do not dwell in the past. See, I am doing a new thing. This is a great passage. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. Wait a minute. When was that fulfilled? Who came preparing the way of the Lord in the desert? John the Baptist, or the baptizer, came, and the Lord was being prepared. Prepare ye the way of the Lord in the desert. And this passage talks about that. He did a new thing in sending Christ into the world. It never happened before and will never happen again. Nothing will be remembered. Well, we've already seen that God's memory is eternal. The creation does look like a mess right now. 
But the Bible says in Romans 8, it was subjected to vanity or futility in hope, in hope that the creation will be set free from the bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Christ is the ultimate satisfaction. He is the one true shepherd. He is the one true wisdom. So the one who deserts the lusts of the world and clings to Jesus Christ will live forever. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you believe this? If you believe this, you are wiser than a million philosophers who can't find the truth. You have found the truth in Jesus Christ. You are wiser than Solomon, even, in these bleak days. For you have come to see and understand that Christ has been sent into this world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires and lusts. But this is true of you if you're a believer. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. If you set your mind to know no one or nothing but Christ, the whole world in fact, will be yours. Shall we pray? Lord, Lord, oh God, we, you know your wisdom, and in your wisdom you promised that the meek will inherit the earth, an earth that was meant to be possessed by you and then blessed by you and then inhabited by us in our innocence in the time of Adam and Eve. Sin has entered in and destroyed so much. We wonder how can it all be put back together again. But it's true that we have seen that the one who drinks of the water in this life will thirst again, as Jesus told the woman at the well. But the one who drinks of Christ will never thirst because his ultimate desires in him will be fulfilled. Hear our prayers and bless us even this week to see the purpose and meaning of everything we do in life in Jesus' name.